Ricky knew I was having trouble putting food on the table. So he called me up to say there's some roadkill down the way, just past the bridge. No shame in it. Now this is a big boy, Ricky said. Enough meat to really fill up your freezer. It was just a few days before the start of deer season. The woods were overflowing, not just with animals, but also pollen, insect noise, ghosts. You never knew what you could find on the side of the road. I asked Ricky how long he figured the roadkill had been there. Well, seeing as I'm the one hit it, say about ten minutes ago. So why not take it yourself? I asked. Well, because I'm coming back from the dice and figured I'd not test my luck by adding another crime on top of that, Ricky said. The dice was the dice roll, the pub across town by the river, which meant Ricky was out on a drunk again, driving the back roads. A big carcass in his truck bed might draw some unwanted attention, especially with the Department of Transportation's laws against harvesting roadkill. Shot or run over, it made no difference. This time of year, no matter what kind of carcass you had in your truck bed, from giant buck to tiny chipmunk, it would land you on the wrong side of the law. The rest of my truck is all banged all to hell anyway. This sucker was so big, cracked my whole damn windshield. So what, you just leave it there in the road for someone else to run over? Nah, I dragged it off into the bushes as best I could. But you should be able to get out and find it easy enough if you pull over by the big tree. You know the one. I was in my tool shed when Ricky called, near 1 a.m., so my wife and kids were asleep in bed. But I knew the route in and out of the woods that the late-nighters took to avoid the law. It wasn't unusual for me to be awake at this hour. Ricky knew I never could sleep much anymore. We were the same like that. You tell me what you want to do, he said over the phone. Otherwise, I'll call somebody else to go pick it up off the road. No, I said. I want it. All right, then. Call if you need anything else. Just make sure you delete me from your call history once we hang up. Ricky, since when am I a fool? Just making sure. You've been a good and godly family man for a while now. Didn't know if you'd forgotten. I remember everything. I told him. You wouldn't guess how hard it is on the spirit, how deep the fear, to know that if you make one small mistake in your life, one small offense, everything you love can be taken from you. On that night Ricky called me about the roadkill he'd hit, I had been up late building furniture in my shed. I'd been doing that a while now to bring in some extra cash. Ricky and I had once been partners, before doing some time together at Livesey Correctional Institution about five years earlier for some bad things I'd rather not discuss. But the result was that even when folks were begging people to come back to work, they never wanted a felon like me. Five years, one month, and three days I'd been on parole as of that night. Too long, no doubt. But given the multitude of other sins they could have gotten me for, I tried taking it as a blessing. Yet I knew I was living with an axe over my head. Sarah, my wife, 
had seen past my shortcomings when I'd met her at the Methodist Church a few months after I'd gotten out, and we'd since gone on to build a life together. Our son, Jacob, was four. Our daughter, Abigail, had just turned two. Sarah worked all day as a home health aide, and I watched over the kids while trying to find part-time work, scavenging whatever meager job I could find. Ricky, my old partner, had taken a different path. It was always late at night when he called. We weren't supposed to contact one another on court order. That never stopped me from picking up. The roadkill was not far. I got in my truck and kept the headlights off as I eased out of the curved dirt driveway, making sure to wait until I'd passed by our neighbor's shacks and had reached the main road before I flipped them on. These were wooded roads. They terrified me in ways most people wouldn't understand. My headlamps washed over twisted tree branches and overhanging leaves and sagging power lines. Even the main road was empty this late. Only one other car passed me by as I drove the five miles or so to the crossroads under the bridge, where Ricky had dragged the roadkill into the bushes. Right away I saw he'd been sloppy. Part of his truck's grill lay in the road, glinting like river gold in my headlamps. I pulled over and cut the engine. When I stepped out into the cool night air, the fragrance of the woods confronted me. These earthy, damp smells that were more memory than sense. All the nights Ricky and I had hidden things in the woods now layered over one another in my mind as I walked over to pick the chunk of his grill out of the road. We'd hidden so much out here, so close to our homes. It was starting to change me. Or maybe it already had, and I was only just noticing. Once, a few months earlier, my wife Sarah had asked me why I kept the windows rolled up when I drove down these roads on cool spring nights. Wouldn't it be nicer, she'd said, to let the fresh air in? And how could I tell her the truth? which was, I felt as if ghosts were whispering to me with the windows open. The feel of the wind out here was like fingertips on my neck. Not pressing, exactly. Just grazing, reminding me of who I was. And the sounds, crickets chirping, faraway trains wailing. The silence that filled the space between the tree branches. Like voices talking, but you can't ever hear what they're saying about you. Bending down in the middle of the road now, in the whispering quiet of the night, I lifted the grill chunk of Ricky's truck in my hand. Even by moonlight, I could see the part number on the back. You drunk fool, I said out loud. The chunk must have come off when he'd slammed into the roadkill. He'd been too drunk to see it lying over the lane line of the road. I tossed the debris in my truck bed. Had the police found that on the road, they could have traced it right back to the make and model of Ricky's truck. It took more time to find the roadkill. Ricky had really dragged it deep into the woods. He would do that sometimes when he'd been drinking. He'd put in more effort than was needed to get a particular job done, as if overcompensating for his drunkenness. He would bury holes too deep, for example, 
or set things on fire and wait too long to assure everything had become ashes before leaving. All while missing simple things, like a grill chunk in the road, or worse. I found the roadkill's carcass lying where he'd said, in some bushes deep in the woods. Ricky wasn't lying. It was a big sucker. I dragged it out by the legs, but had to stop a few times to catch my breath. Before emerging from the woods, I waited a few seconds by the big tree, listening for any oncoming cars. The night was quiet, breathing around me. I felt as if I were being watched by a thousand eyes. I told myself I was just feeding my family, doing what I had to do, risking it for them. I dragged the roadkill out onto the pavement. Despite how many times I dealt with dead things, I felt bad the way the poor animal's bodies scraped the limp against the road. Even dead, we should all have some dignity. When I managed to squat down and heave the thing up into my truck bed, I covered it with a tarp and tied it down carefully, covering it up to relieve my own worries as much as I hoped it gave comfort to it as well, wherever this animal's soul had flown off to. Deer, birds, squirrels, rabbits. How many confused animals had died on this curve of the road since it had been paved? My sins, by any account, were far fewer than the sins of the automobile and its endless stampede through this wilderness. And as true as I believed that to be, it didn't lessen my guilt. For tonight's roadkill, I had purposefully brought over crates and stacks of wood and buckets to situate around the body in my truck bed to make the covered lump look less obvious. I drove slowly on my way back, weaving down the roads carved through the woods, feeling my breath calming the closer I got to the safety of my dirt driveway. I was about a mile from home when the blue and red lights of the sheriff's deputy flashed behind me. I've always prided myself on staying calm during traffic stops. Ricky, though, was something else. Back when we were still partners, I once saw Ricky dance his way out of a DUI checkpoint stop, despite us having contraband in our trunk that could have sent us to prison for the rest of our lives. I say he danced, and I meant it. The deputy had asked Ricky to step out of the car. Then he'd had him doing the field sobriety walk, one foot in front of the other, Ricky touching a finger to his nose. When out of the blue, he decided to spin around and do a Michael Jackson moonwalk right in front of the cruiser. Ricky chopped his feet and managed to keep swinging his arms side to side while touching his nose, spinning gracefully back around and then stopping on a dime with his arms outstretched, as if to say, see, ta-da. I had witnessed Ricky drink no fewer than 10 whiskey sodas that night. The officer was laughing as he let us go. What are you so stressed about? Ricky asked me as he drove on, lighting a cigarette and grinning at me. He even leaned out to wave at the deputy as the cruiser drove past us. I didn't say anything. All I did 
was lean forward, open the glove box, and put the loaded pistol I'd been clutching in my right hand back inside with the fake insurance papers. On this late night, with the roadkill in my truck bed, I pulled to the side of the road and let my muscle memory kick in. The red and blue lights of the sheriff's deputy's cruiser strobing inside the cabin of my truck. I had a skill where I could move my body without moving my silhouette. From behind, the deputy who pulled me over would not have seen me remove the handgun from the center console. As he walked up to my truck, he would not have seen me wedge the gun in the crevice on the right side of my seat. Hidden, yet I could pull it out swiftly, like a cowboy drawing a pistol from a holster. My posture had remained unchanged all the while, my arm moving independently behind the cover of the seats and my own body. Then I rolled down my window and waited. The air of the woods eased into the car. When he got beside my open window, the deputy stepped one foot up on the sidebar of my truck. Evening. Get your license and registration, please, he said. I handed him my documents. Then he took the documents back to his cruiser and ran my information. I paused my mind, waiting. When he came back, the deputy said, Thought I saw you driving a little sluggish, so just wanted to check. Heard about some commotion going on tonight. You been drinking? No, sir, I told him. What are you doing out this late, then? Well, I'll tell you. And I laughed in a way that sounded like a real laugh. A non-threatening laugh. Saying now, Got two young kids in the house and a wife working double shifts, so... Hard to get much work done during the day, you know? The deputy's posture relaxed just enough for me to notice. He said, I hear that. My wife's uh, expecting our first, matter of fact. Well, I said, congratulations. You work nights normally or just pulling doubles to get out of the house? He grinned at that. Doubles when I can. Good to have the money. Figure it'll be hard once the baby comes. Brother, you don't even know. What, that bad? Eh, enjoy the peaceful nights of chasing down bad guys while you have the chance, I said. A baby crying all night will make a car chase seem like a day at the lake. He exhaled out his nose, a soft laugh, as he handed my license and papers back through the open window. Then he did something he shouldn't have done. He stepped all the way back down in the dirt and glanced at the back of my truck, getting a closer look at what all I had piled up in the bed. He was a young guy. A kid, really. As he stepped up to look in my truck bed, I touched my fingers to the grip of the handgun to feel it was still there. The deputy was leaning over fully now to look in the bed. I could hear him, touching at things, moving things, sniffing around. I looked straight ahead, out the windshield. My grip on the handgun tightened. Well, shoot. 
the deputy said a moment later, reappearing at the window. I see you've got something in your truck bed under that tarp, huh? I closed my eyes, breathing in the smell of the woods that had surrounded me. But I decided not to check what it was, the deputy said, patting his hand on the top of my truck. Figure I can guess what's in there, huh? But ain't like deer season ain't more than three days off anyway. No use in bothering you about it. I opened my eyes now, my right hand releasing the grip of the handgun hidden at my side. Well, I told him, exhaling, I surely do appreciate you for that. Hey, we all gotta eat, he said. And sorry for the hassle. No warning or citation. And so you know, I've got no plans to report this stop to your parole officer. But when I ran your plate, automatically popped up in my system, which means it'll appear in your account if your PO checks. Just in case you get a call about being out so late. Shouldn't factor in, but thought it polite to give you notice. I'm aware, I told him. But hey... Appreciate the heads up all the same. Sure. You take care now. When are you expecting, by the way? I said. I was looking at him through my side-view mirror. The deputy had already started walking back to his cruiser. He turned, said, Pardon? Your baby, I said. When's the due date? He put his hands on his hips, as if he'd forgotten. They say about three months, give or take. It'll come before you know it. He nodded. Already seems like it's happening too fast. Sure, that's all too normal, I told him. And don't beat yourself up down the road if you feel guilty about making a mistake. You can't protect them from everything. And so you know yourself, you might not sleep well the next few years because, trust me, it can feel like the whole world got a whole lot sharper and more dangerous and evil the moment your kid arrives. It's like a light got shown and you see things in color and you see how bad things are for you and for everyone. And you try to fix it all while grabbing all around at what to do, but nothing can be done. Nothing can be perfect. Forgive yourself for your past mistakes. Nothing you can do about that. All you can do is try your best moving forward. Try not to make history repeat itself, for your kids' sake. And most of all, stay safe, son. These are dark woods. The young deputy stepped back into the road, his arms dangling at his side. His right hand hovered over his gun's holster. He looked like he was about to say something, like he was about to do something. Then he said, You too. And walked back to his cruiser as I drove off. Only this time, I left my window down, feeling the ghosts at my neck the whole way home. My own father was a good man. As a child, I learned from him how to dress and butcher a deer. The animal is not so different from us, my father said, 
and I remember the care he took as his knife blade separated the deer's muscles from bone, sinew from flesh. His large but gentle hands placing the cuts of meat in organized piles beside him. I remembered this as I dressed the roadkill in my tool shed that night, after arriving back home from the wooded roads. My father stopped talking to me when I was 16 years old. By the time I'd been incarcerated for the first time, he was dead of a heart attack. He would not have approved of me using the skills he'd shown me the way I was using them tonight on this mangled roadkill dragged out of the woods. But I was never a good hunter. Unlike him, I always hesitated. I would see the animal standing still in the trees, its neck angled downward to drink from a stream, and I could not bring myself to pull the trigger. He saw this as a failure in me, but the truth is I had the strength and discipline never to kill anything that did not deserve it or was not out to hurt me. And in this regard, I did not understand him as much as he did not understand me. I was not responsible for this roadkill, which I was now carving up in my shed. I was just making sure that death wasn't in vain. Close to sunrise, as I was finishing up the butchering, my phone vibrated from where I'd left it on the shelf. I glanced at the screen without touching it, my hands bloody with butchered flesh. It was Ricky calling. I let it go to voicemail. I didn't want to hear his voice this close to morning. Some of the cuts of meat I bagged and put into the freezer. The good cuts I left for the fridge. When my family woke up and saw what I'd brought them, my wife would smile and tell me I was a good man. And that night, we would have the table set with delicious steaks and mashed potatoes and gravy, like Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner. You have to count your blessings when you got them, because it's hard to be a good man these days. They make it so tough to provide. You try your best, and it's never enough. You've got to scavenge what you can. Like Ricky said, no shame in it. The bones, from which I had pulled loose the flesh, I started simmering in a pot to make a bone broth. The next day I would drain the bones out, including the jaw and the skull, dry them, and then crush the bones into fine powder, which I would dissolve in the streams in the backwoods a few miles away, like I always did. The hydrogen in the bones would nourish the soil. The soil would nourish the plants. The plants would yield fruit and life. Or so I heard. I read that once from a science book while I'd been in prison. According to the book, the chemicals of life always reform anew, so that no death is final, no ghost beyond salvation. Seeds emerge from husks. Always. But some things need to be burned altogether. As the bones were still simmering that morning, I went out to the backyard of my family's shack and started a fire. I waited until the fire was roaring. 
Then I went back inside and took all the inedible remains of the roadkill and carried them outside. I placed them into the fire, piece by piece, until they caught. All around me, the birds were waking up. It was just about morning now. The first hint of sun touched the leaves of the sugar maple trees beyond my shack. I grabbed a warm can of beer from a bucket by the fire pit and cracked it open. My wife wouldn't mind. I had a lot of cooking to do that day, and I'd earned it. The beer tasted good, like I'd done something with my night. Standing by the fire, I waited until the heat had devoured the roadkill's t-shirt, his jeans and underwear, his shoes and socks. Based on the clothes, I figured he'd been homeless. There were more and more of them out in the woods these days. They'd been wandering, patting their feet at the ground. Ricky probably hadn't even seen him hobbling along the side of the road until he'd hit him. By the condition of the body, this individual had not taken long to die. I watched as the flames spread over the ribbons of skin I'd carved off his body, the calloused padding of his feet and toes, and the roadkill's mostly bald scalp. Oddly, his cheap wallet took the longest to melt in on itself, whatever cards or papers or pictures inside fusing together until there was no identity left. All my years with Ricky, I never did look inside the wallets. Not once. In half an hour or so, when my wife and kids came down for breakfast, I would go inside, pour some coffee, and tell them I hoped they had good appetites, because tonight we would dine like the president himself. <laughs>